good to be with you. Good morning. Morning. The, the, the church in East Vancouver sends their greetings. The church on the downtown east side sends their greetings. Uh, my name is Jake, as Andy said. I, I do want to say thank you. Like Andy said, you supported us about four years ago when we went out to plant uh, in Hastings Sunrise, that neighborhood in East Vancouver, and are supporting Daniel and Stephanie now as they go to Surrey uh, to plant there. And so it's so good to be with you. Uh, I'm going to read from Galatians 3, 10 to 14 this morning, and then we're going to pray again, if that's okay with you. Let me read this for us. If you have your Bible open, Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, this is what the Word of the Lord says to us. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Would you bow your heads with me once more? Father, we pray with the psalmist now. Would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word? We are desperate for your word, uh, desperate for you to speak to us. Uh, We need you to speak to us, Lord. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. Amen. Well, in in the text we heard read, I don't know if you caught it, but we encountered this this very strange world. It's a world of, of blessings and curses. Did you see that? A world of blessings and curses. And by and large, we don't live in a world of blessings and curses. We might use occasionally hashtag blessed. I don't have social media, so I don't actually know if that's still a thing. Is that a thing? Hashtag blessed? I'm getting some, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen hashtag curse. Brittany's saying it's not a thing. Thank you, Brittany. I haven't seen that yet. We, by and large, don't live in the world of blessings and cursings. But we have to remind ourselves that the world of the Bible is a world of blessings and cursings. It should be noted that in Genesis 1, the very first chapter in our Bible, Genesis 1.28 begins with a blessing, begins with God pouring out His divine favor and love upon us, the, the crown of His creation. That's God's blessing upon us in Genesis 1.28. begins with blessing. And yet by Genesis 3, by Genesis 3, as a result of humanity's rebellion, we find God pronouncing a curse over His creation. It's a world of cursing. And really all cursing is is just God's justice meeting our sinfulness. Later still in Deuteronomy 28, we keep on going in our Bibles, we find that Israel, in keeping the commands, will be blessed by them and in disobeying the commands will incur upon themselves a bunch of curses. The Bible's claim is that we live in a world of, of blessing and cursing. A world where God's divine favor, His blessing, is either on you or it's not. And is there anything, I have to ask this morning, is there anything more anxiety-inducing in all of the universe than that very thought? Do I stand confidently? Do I live confidently in blessing today or am I under a hopeless curse? And that desperate question is the very question that's before us in our text this morning. 
hopefully I think we can break it down into three smaller questions. So three smaller questions to guide our time this morning. Ready? Who has God cursed? Or, or whom has God cursed? If you want to be grammatical about it. Who has God cursed? How can we get out from the curse? And, and what does that make us now? Who, who are we now? First point. Who has God cursed? Look at your Bibles, Galatians 3, verse 10, with me. There we read this. Again, for all, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In the previous nine verses of this chapter, you saw this last week. Paul has called the Galatians literally, and kids, it's okay if the apostle says this, he's called the Galatians literally idiotic idiots. He says, you're being idiotic idiots. That's what he's saying. And he's reminded them that it's always been by faith that people are made right before God, not by works of the law. He reminds them of that truth. People of faith are true children of Abraham. They are the blessed one. And now in verse 10... Paul is contrasting the the blessed true children of Abraham with those who are cursed. And who are the cursed? Who are the cursed? Look at verse 10 again, first part. We just read, All, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. To, To rely on works of the law is to remain, depend, abide, it's the same language that Jesus uses in John 15, abide in our belief that we are made right with God on the basis of what we do. And you've seen this over and over and over and over again so far, haven't you? Galatians is like that. It's circular. Paul wants to get at it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, or or you're new to Christianity, or this sounds irrelevant to you, you might be tempted to tune out with verse 10. You might not believe in God, And if you do, you might not think you're estranged from him. But what we all need to see this morning is that relying on our works to be reconciled to the universe or or one another or just to our world or you fill in the blank, relying on our works to be reconciled to one another or to God is the default position of all of humanity, of all of humanity. The, The great irony of our day, maybe you sense this, is that despite our attempts to do away with uh, moral categories, our world has never been more legalistic. It's never been more legalistic. I I feel this very acutely where I live in Vancouver, uh, with it being June and with June coming Pride Month. It's a very uh, heavily celebrated holiday in my neighborhood. And walking down Hastings, you can see the stores who, maybe because they actually ascend to that ideology, or probably out of fear of being labeled bigoted, they've all obliged in putting a flag in their window or some sort of notice. Our world has never been more legalistic, never been more rule-keeping. Relying on works of the law, virtue signaling, whatever you want to call it, to be on the right side of history is not just the impulse of religious people, but it's the impulse of human people. Of, of all people, of you and me, and those who don't know Jesus. And if we do this, Paul says, if we rely on works of the law to be justified, made right before God, he says, we're under a curse. We're cursed. And in support of this point, he goes to Deuteronomy 27. So let's leave 
first century Galatia for a moment and travel back in time with me to the ancient Near East. I'm not sure if your Bible reading plan brought you through Deuteronomy 27 this year. It should have, if it's a good one that's in the Bible. But, but, but in Deuteronomy 27, it's, it's a really, it's a wild chapter in the Bible. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's the Word of God, but it's wild. And, and, and you find there these lists of curses for a variety of things. And so, example, for example, you find uh, curses for dishonoring your parents, which is timely for Father's Day. There you go. Curses for incest. Curses for murder. Curses for uh, other things. And after each curse, which was to be read out to the people of God, to Israel, the people are to respond together saying, Amen. And they're ascending together to these conditions of the covenant. And the last curse in this list of curses is sort of like this summary curse. And so in Deuteronomy 27, 26, we read this. Cursed. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now come back with me to Galatia. Remember, you've heard this, I'm going to say it again, there are some false teachers in Galatia who are trying to add to works of the law to faith for right standing before God. And doesn't, and keep Deuteronomy 27, 26 up there, doesn't Deuteronomy 27, 26 seem like, like the perfect verse for these Judaizers to quote to this church, right? They're saying, you can almost hear it on their lips, you better get circumcised because it's in the law. And don't you want the blessing that comes with keeping the law? Don't you want that, church? Better do it. You can almost hear it. Paul's response in our text this morning is masterful. He turns the argument of the false teachers on its head. And where they want to emphasize the blessing of the law, Paul wants us to see that understood as a means to make ourselves right with God, the law is a curse. And where they want to preach the simplicity of just keeping the law, well, Paul wants the Galatians to be reminded that that no one has ever perfectly kept the law. It's true then, it's true today. And Paul will write later in this letter, you'll see later in the series... In Galatians 5, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In fact, Paul's already made this point. You've already heard this point. Galatians, remember, is this circular getting at the same problem in our heart. In Galatians 2, 21, you heard it said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law... Then Christ died for no purpose. If you can save yourself, then why would Jesus have to die? That's what he's saying. The law can't save you. Indeed, the law was never meant to save you. The law itself testifies to this very fact. And so Paul continues in our passage. Look at your Bibles, verses 11 to 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. So, so even, even in the earliest days of the law's existence, the law looked ahead to a more glorious day when it would be written on people's hearts. When, when outward circumcision 
would give way to circumcision of the heart. And Paul's quoting Habakkuk 2.4 in verse 11 to show us this. And then again in verse 12, he quotes Leviticus 18.5. And I want to read this to you, verse 12 in Galatians 3, from a, from a different translation. I love how it's put here in the NLT. It says this, This way of faith is very different from the way of law which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. And so again, a contrast is being drawn from us. The way of faith, the way of trust, which leads to righteousness, and the way of the law, which promises to lead to life. But the problem is, and here's the rub, and you need to hear this every, every, every day. No one can keep the law. No one has kept the law. And we can summarize all that Paul's saying so far like this. If you've missed it up until this point, hear this. The, the cursed are all those who in pride refuse to give way to faith and to trust. And in doing so, Paul says unequivocally, will stand condemned on the last day. That's the language of the text. You and I, outside of Christ, Paul says, are cursed. Cursed. One pastor says it like this. All of us who share a heartbeat share a curse. For we all do not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now there are a few things easy or maybe more difficult for a guest preacher to say. And so you can decide which one this is. But we should be clear here at this point. The curse, as Paul understands it, is not like a slap on the wrist. It's not like a do better, try harder next time. The curse, as Paul understands it, is nothing less than eternity in hell. Nothing less than being cut off forever from God's covenant people and blessings. Nothing less than eternal suffering outside of God's kingdom. The curse affects our life then... But isn't it true the curse affects our life now? Living under the curse has both future and present implications. If you want, you can close your eyes with me and picture this. The picture that Paul is painting here is of a person living their life under the precariousness of having an executioner's blade just dangling above their neck. And, and, and the reformer, Martin Luther, I'm sure Lee's quoted to you, uh, him to you before, he describes life under the, the executioner's blade, life under the curse this way. He says this, he says, O law, you would climb up into the kingdom of my conscience and there reign and condemn me for sin and would take from me the joy of my heart which I have by faith in Christ and drive me to desperation that I might be without hope. And, and some of you, in Luther's words, you hear your current experience, don't you? There are some of you this morning, having never heard the gospel before with the eyes of faith, and Luther's describing your felt experience. Your conscience condemns you. You have no joy, and you are despairing. And what do we do with despair? I'll tell you what I see. We medicate despair with avoidance, with clever arguments, 
and with our substance of choice. And while the Christian is by definition, by definition, no longer under the curse, we can still at times functionally live as if that's true of us. Forget the gospel that we've been saved into and saved for. Not just you, it's also me. As Andy said, we planted a church four years ago, which is a great time to plant a church. If you want to plant a church, it's right before a pandemic. It's a great time. Highly recommend it. Just, I love being on a screen, and I'm sure none of us have trauma or stuff about that. I do. This is my confession to you. I have stuff. I'm working it out now with you, my counselors. But I was convinced, I was convinced that when we first planted, that our success as a church in East Vancouver depended upon a few things. Uh, the decor, the announcements, what kind of garbage cans we had. I mean, we're in Vancouver, what kind of coffee we served, right? And Mick Cafe doesn't fly where I serve, even though I love it. Hear me, I love it. We can't serve it at our church. I was convinced that if I did these things, then my church would grow. Our church would succeed. We'd be successful. But would you believe it? Things weren't perfect. A pandemic happened. People gathered. And with people, including myself, comes a whole bunch of sin and brokenness and a bunch of other stuff. And if you ask my wife, who will be here in the second gathering, Sunday afternoons, my joy, my ability to be a dad, to be with my kids, would be dictated by whether or not I felt our gathering was up to snuff. And in fact, let's be honest, my whole week was dictated by how Sunday went, how we performed, how I performed. It's crushing. It was crushing. And and don't mishear me. I think excellence at its best is a Christian virtue. But when people become projects and tools for your vision, and despair becomes inevitable if things don't go the way you want them to, you've crossed over into the dangerous world of perfectionism. And if I can quote Luther again, it's in these moments as followers of Jesus, when law creeps into the kingdom of our conscience, that we need to learn to apply the truth of the gospel against the condemnation we feel. And so Luther continues to say that we should speak like this to our hearts when the law creeps in, when, when the law condemns us. He says this, he says, Law, you have overstepped your bounds. Know your place. And you can, you can see Luther just shouting this, right? You Know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior and Lord of my heart. For I am baptized, and through the gospel am called to receive righteousness and eternal life, and so trouble me not. For I will not allow you, so intolerable a tyrant and tormentor, to reign in my heart and conscience. For they are the seats and temple of Christ, the Son of God, who is the King of righteousness and peace, and my most sweet Savior and mediator, He, Jesus. His gospel shall keep my conscience joyful and quiet in the sound and pure doctrine of the gospel through the knowledge of this, listen, passive and heavenly righteousness. The question before you who don't know Jesus this morning is this. How do I move out from under the law? The question before you, if you've been following Jesus for a while, but you're functionally at times living still under the curse, is what must I be reminded of 
What must I hear again to enjoy the freedom that Christ has won for me? And if that's you, that's both of us, move with me to our second point. Our second question is this. How can we get out? How can we get out from under the curse? Look at verse 13 with me again. Bible's open. Read this with me. There the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The the turn in our text, I don't know if you felt this when it was being read, but the turn in our text is quite abrupt, isn't it? It's abrupt. We've been left with this hard and fast, inescapable reality at the end of verse 12, haven't we? That those who seek to live by the law will fail, and it's only by faith that we can be made right with God. But faith in what? And trust in what? Trusting that God exists? Trusting in some general notion of an entity beyond yourself? No, no, the faith that Paul describes here is a, a specified faith. A particular faith. It's faith, as we see in verse 13. Do you see it there? It's faith that in the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, my sin and your sin has been paid for. That we have been brought out from under the executioner's blade. And where our head rested on the chopping block, Jesus has placed his. The full weight the fullness of eternal hell that was destined to come down on us at the cross instead comes down on Jesus. See, when Paul says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, he again is quoting from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21-23. And Israelites who had committed crimes punishable by death, after they'd been killed their body would be taken and it would be hung on a wooden post as a sign, as a sign to the watching community of the consequences, the serious consequences of breaking certain laws in this covenant community. And strange as it might sound then, these dead and lifeless bodies would teach, would teach the people of God what it means, what it truly means to be accursed by God or accursed of God. The cursed person would serve as a warning. Now bring this to the cross for a second. See this. While the crucifixion of Jesus should inspire awe and gratitude and worship, it should, it, it must, it is also intended to act, church, as a graphic teacher to us, a graphic reminder to us, teaching us of the very nature of the reality of sin itself, the consequences and the results of the nature of life under the curse. And so here's what this means. It means that every time we minimize or downplay skirt over, ignore our sin, we make God's plan to send His Son to die on the cross for our sin seem like an overreaction on God's part. That's what happens when we're minimizing our sin. That's what we're saying. Jesus didn't really have to do that. It's actually not that bad. I'm actually not that bad. But the Scriptures assure us we are. 
And it was. The only way out from under the curse of failing to abide by everything written in the book of the law is to trust in the one who did obey everything. Everything. Cursed people, dead people, can't help other cursed, dead people. You get that. We get that. We need someone who has obeyed the law perfectly. And so thankfully, Jesus tells us in John 8.29, the only man who has ever said these words truthfully, listen to this. Jesus says, I always, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. And he did. How can we get out from the curse? How do we continue our Christian faith? By the Spirit. We trust in Jesus. Again and again, we trust in His perfect obedience. And listen, the degree to which we trust in Jesus is always measured by what sin we believe that we can bring to Him. I'll say it again. The degree to which we trust in Jesus is always measured by what sin we believe that we can bring to Him. What sin we actually believe He's died for. So living and working in and around the downtown east side has meant that at my church where I serve, there are a significant number of people who are wrestling with addiction. A significant percentage of our church is either in recovery or just out of recovery or needing to go into a recovery program. That's just where we serve. And one of the regular pastoral occurrences that that I uh, enjoy is seeing someone disappear for months at a time, months at a time, because they've relapsed and they're too embarrassed to show their faith face uh, in the church, at the gathering. And in that moment, what's happening? What's happening in that person? They have a functional belief that the gospel is big enough to cover some sin, some shame, some of the things that we do, but that there are other sins too big too shameful, not covered, too embarrassing. The horror of the cross, and the cross is horrific, the horror of the cross reminds us of God's plan to save us from horrific sin. Do you see that crossroad? Not just the socially acceptable stuff, but the horrific stuff, the I've never told anybody stuff, the real ugly stuff in me and in you. Your internal voice, my internal voice, would have us believe there is no getting out from under the curse apart, apart from some self-salvation project, apart from some form of self-induced atonement, right? But your internal voice and my internal voice lies to you. All the time it lies to you and it lies to me. How can we get out from under the curse? By trusting in the one who was cursed on our behalf. Jesus, the blessed one, became a curse for me and for you so that we might be blessed, that we may rest in that blessedness. Last question, and then we're done. Kids, you've done amazing. Well done, kids. Third question, and what does that make us now? Here's the answer that Galatians 3.14 gives us. Look at your Bibles. I'll summarize it, then I'll read it. Galatians 3.14 is saying, listen, we are the outsiders brought in. We're the orphaned now adopted. We're the unclean now made clean. We are blessed in Christ. Our passage reads, so that in Christ Jesus, 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that's most of us, if not all of us here, us non-Jews, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Jesus' work in becoming a curse, that we might become the blessed, was not for every person. Look at verse 14. Paul says, it is those, do you see it? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus who received the blessing of Abraham. Again, this is not the vague goodwill blessing you might end an email with. This is the blessing that comes with being united to Christ. Our union with Jesus, being made one with Jesus, it is the greatest blessing we could ever receive. In fact, every blessing, our salvation, our adoption, our sanctification, a whole bunch of other more church words, every other blessing comes out of that one chief blessing of being made one with Jesus, our union with Christ. Everything flows from there. So read Ephesians 1, and Paul will say again and again and again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's our chief blessing. It is a blessing made real to us and sealed in us by receiving the blessing of Abraham, by receiving the Holy Spirit. And is by the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in both Jew and Gentile that God fulfills his promise to Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. It is a transforming presence of the Holy Spirit that signifies that you and I are indeed true kids of Abraham, true kids of the Father. And it is now by the Holy Spirit that you and I are able to walk in the commands set out for us, the true kids of Abraham. We live now, not by the standard or the anxiety of the law, but by the life-giving leading of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but this makes me wildly uncomfortable. I often would prefer the law to the Spirit. Because on one hand... It is much easier to live my life according to a to-do list, a series of tasks that need to be checked off. It is easier for whole churches to, to live like this. Sometimes we feel as if the alternative is this wild liberalism. We, we people in churches, we implicitly or explicitly add some element of law to faith in Jesus. This is true of churches everywhere. We do this all the time. Again, remember, this is the impulse of the, the human heart. We want to add to the work of Jesus. So you can belong here, but to belong here, no, no tattoos, right? You have to look a certain way. You have to, you have to do certain things. And, and, and please don't be disruptive during the gathering. Adding. On the other hand, right, this does not mean we do whatever we want. Having been justified by faith, given a new heart by the Spirit with new desires, we gladly seek to walk in this new life. And we're constantly vacillating between these two poles. And that vacillation only serves to remind us how foreign, how strange the gospel of Jesus truly is. Like, why can't we just get the gospel? Have you ever thought about that before? Why can't we just understand and live in and remain in and abide in the gospel of Jesus? Why is it so uncomfortable for us? Let me suggest this. There is nothing like the gospel in all the world. When Jesus became a curse for us, 
A knife cut through the fabric of history. A new kingdom with a new way of living was ushered in. And it's not the kingdom that you and I inhabit uh, in our nine to five or on our weekends or at our kids' soccer practice. And so what, what do we do? We prefer our walls. We prefer the curse. We prefer the law because the curse and the law is easy to manage, easy to control. And like hostages who grow close with their captors, when we choose the law over the good news of Christ becoming a curse for us, we show signs of this spiritual Stockholm syndrome. So one commentator said it like this when he wrote, Wide open spaces are scary for people who ultimately trust in walls. So let me end by saying this. Living by faith in Jesus is very scary. It's very scary. It's scary for me. And if you've been doing it for a while, you know it's scary for you. As a pastor living in a city that is very hostile to the gospel, in a neighborhood that is very hostile to the gospel, it's scary. As a husband seeking to lead his wife in this world, it's scary. And today is Father's Day. As a father of four young boys, hoping to see them become men of integrity in this world, it's, it's a scary thing, right? Any pastor who comes up here, any person who comes up here and says something else is lying, it's a scary place. It's a scary place where, where straightforward and simple law-keeping give way to opening up your entire life, every corner of your life, to being examined by the Holy Spirit. And so I'd invite you this morning, if there's a, a corner of your life, you're like, Holy Spirit, not there. Living by faith means, Holy Spirit, go there. Where mediocrity and status quo give way to radical uh, transformation. It, it's a really scary place. Where, where the grip on your 5 or 10 or 15 year plan is loosened and you find yourself praying things, scary things like, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And while this might be a scary place, make no mistake about it. He, hear what Paul has for us this morning. It is a blessed place. It is a blessed place now and it will be a blessed place then. For it is only those who find themselves standing by faith in the curse-bearing work of Christ, who will on that last day stand at all. Hear these words, Crossridge. Hear the word of the Lord for you this morning. Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask for forgiveness when out of a desire to control or manage our lives, we have chosen to live under the law. And even though we've been removed, saved from this in Christ, we are functionally day by day at times living there, moment by moment living there. And so help us. Help us to live as those who have been freed by your gospel, freed for good works, freed to serve you and your church. We need your help, all of us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.